Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yep. Hey, Darren, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm really happy that you are the first person to appear on my podcast. I'm really excited. Well, I'm thrilled and honored, and congratulations on the launch. Thank you very much. I thought it would be so fitting to have you on, especially after the last few months since 1-6, and you know that it's a topic that I hold very dear to my heart and I'm following very closely. But before we start, I wanted to ask you, on a scale from 1 to 10, how sure are you that the NSA is listening live right now? (laughs) I'm pretty confident. (laughs) Pretty confident. What a week it's been. And you you would think, though, after so many years of presumably listening to me that the NSA would be a little bit more intelligent by now, but... I guess they I guess they haven't learned their lessons so I need to do a better job because you know you you figure if if you're persuasive enough the NSA itself would have to be convinced at some point. I think they 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 see that you're very persistent and uh they they'll do everything they can to keep taps on you. For sure. For sure. Um listen what I what I'd love for the audience to to hear is it's been now yeah, six months almost since the fake insurrection took place and I first wrote about it and I'm incredibly proud that this opinion piece was published with you um, on Revolver a couple of weeks after 1-6 and since then basically you and your investigative team have done such a brilliant job at unraveling every single lie that is propping up this narrative, culminating with the last two bombshell investigative reports. And I was hoping you could give kind of a recap going through all of these pieces and, you know, to the point where we are today, where clearly the lie, thanks to your latest two bombshells, is is on the brink of collapse. Absolutely. Well, I'd I'd love to I'd love to get into this, and I'll really uh, focus most of the time on these last two pieces. The pieces prior to that were very important, but they've kind of run their course in the sense that Officer Sicknick, whose death originally was imputed to the the MAGA protesters bludgeoning to death with a fire extinguisher, we exposed that as false. They later went to bear spray. They said he died of bear spray. We did a very detailed comparative image analysis of all things on this and concluded there's no way he died of bear spray. In fact, he wasn't even sprayed with bear spray. And that was uh, uh, later vindicated. And now we're resting on the new official explanation that Officer Sicknick died of natural causes. And so the whole deadly riot, insofar as it was attributed to the death of Sicknick, was totally false and part of the broader um, lie of 1-6. Now, what's happened in these last pieces, the, the, the second to last piece uh, that Revolver did was really had a seismic impact because, you know, there's a lot of skepticism within the right, within the conservative community, within basically anyone who's has a remote capacity to criticize or be skeptical of establishment narratives at this point. We all kind of had a sense that there's something wrong with 1-6, but 
the explanations and narratives were pretty scattered. You had people saying, well, looks like a lot of innocent people just were around and there's video that they opened doors to the Capitol and people just walked in and took selfies and they didn't really do much. And that, of course, is true. And that's an important part of the narrative and explanation. And there are others who said, you know what, there were some rowdy folks, but those were Antifa infiltrators and such. And there may be some truth to that. But I think what this last piece did at Revolver.News is really help to focus the narrative exactly at the place that the regime media does not want the attention of 1-6 to be focused on. And that is the simple question. Was 1-6 the result of this intelligence failure, as the FBI director says, the official explanation is, we just, it's an intelligence failure, which is why on 1-6, when we knew there was going to be this big protest near the Capitol, we had uniquely poor security on that very day and just happened to have people walk in. The massive intelligence failure. Or, as this Revolver.News piece suggests, was it an intelligence setup? Now, I think to help give the audience, especially those unfamiliar with this argument, uh, a sense of reinforced intuition on the matter, because look, a lot of Americans, unlike you know people in different countries uh, who uh, tend to have a very skeptical attitude toward their governments, a lot of Americans still have this idea that the government's working for them, it's not corrupt. Maybe here and there they're incompetent, but they would never do something like set up an event like 1-6. I could go through the entire history of the FBI, beginning with J. Edgar Hoover, to uh, uh, undermine that position. But we don't need to go all the way back to Hoover. As this piece points out, what we need to do is go back just months before the so-called siege of the Capitol to the Michigan uh, kidnapping plot. Mm -hmm. In short, this was a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, which also involved a plan to storm the Michigan State Capitol. Gee, that sounds familiar. It involved one of the three major militia groups later imputed to one-sixth, three percenters. That's mm -hmm. interesting. So same plot, one of the same militia groups. And did the FBI infiltrate it? Well, you bet they did. In fact, of the 18 plotters identified in this uh, event, we now know at least five were federal operatives of some kind, either as undercover agents or as informants. That's five out of 18. That's a hell of a ratio. And just as a cherry on top, the head of the Detroit FBI field office who oversaw this infiltration operation into the Michigan plot, just days after the plotters were arrested, FBI Director Christopher Wray promoted him to the D.C. field office where he went on to oversee you guessed it, he went on to oversee the 1-6 investigation. So this happened just months before. So that's just to set people's intuition. Now, I'm going to stop in case you have any questions or comments, and then I can proceed into the actual argument that we made about why 1-6 was uh, an intel setup rather than an intel failure. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you put your finger on it very precisely. People can't imagine, and it's, val it's valid for over here in Western Europe at least, people can't imagine that the government would conspire at many different levels, engaging many different agencies and institutions in order to 
um, set something up that would then justify targeting their own citizens. And this is what I found brilliant and why I mentioned the earlier pieces that you've been publishing since January, leading to, as I said, the culminating ones, where the question is really posed, you know, this was, this was a, a, a setup, not a failure. But the way that you methodically went about to open up the minds of people that this was orchestrated and um, the, the tweet that you, that you shared that I posted yesterday with the steps of how the, the national security apparatus is operating in essence to justify the spying on, on their own citizens. One six is the perfect case that is so fresh and so recent that allows people to begin to question the motives of the government, which is so important. And in one of your interviews that I watched recently, you, you said, and uh, I've repeated that as well myself in, in my recent interviews, you know, we cannot let this narrative become sacred. And we see how they're doing everything possible. You know, they call it the day of terror. They've called this for months the day of t terror, yesterday trending, the day of rage. And especially, you know, here in Europe, where the bottlenecks are even tighter, people truly still believe that five people died at the hands of Trump supporters on 1-6. And uh, the work that you're doing to dispel this and show people the reality of that event is, is um, something for which I, I, I admire you and... Um, also, Julie Kelly, you know, at American Greatness, you guys have been on it and relentlessly, like you're, you're doing republic saving work is what I've been saying as well uh, over there at Revolver. So for, for the audience, especially those who, who don't, who haven't followed, I think it's important for them to understand the, how would you say? Well, it's, uh, and thank you for those uh, kind words. And I, I want to jump on something you said. Mm -hmm. we, we can't let these narratives become sacred. The way I formulate it is we cannot let them be become sacred before they become challenged. Because what happens is you have these narratives ossify into something. They come sacred. They have such emotional valence that the narrative is sacred before it can be challenged. And that's exactly how the regime gets away with a lot of things, certain antecedents to 1-6, other events that have tremendous emotional valences simply can't be uh, effectively challenged at the moment because there's such an emotional content around. They have a, a sacral, a sacred quality. Mm -hmm. and so I think part of the effectiveness of what I'm trying to do here with Revolver is get in before the narrative becomes sacred. Mm -hmm. And I think we just were able to slip in the crack because I've seen a tremendous effect from this previous piece. Um, it became, I think it's fair to say, the biggest story in the country after I went on Tucker Carlson and he promoted it uh, several days in a row. Yes. And, th and then with this follow-up piece on Stuart Rhodes, uh, it's really kind of was able to refine the thesis to a point. But uh, for your listeners, I'd just like to very quickly explain what the structure of the argument is because as compelling as the Michigan plot antecedent was and 
reinforcing our sense that yes, this kind of stuff actually does happen. And it happened just months ago with the same plot, with one of the same militias, with one of the same FBI guys. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself does not uh, say anything about what happened in 1-6. That's just an intuition reinforcer. 1-6, mm-hmm. the argument was this, is that our investigative team, we've been on this, we've been looking at this from the very beginning for months and months now. And very early on, we noticed something peculiar, which is that in the charging documents of the indictments of people for 1-6 related crimes, you had all of these un, uh, unnamed people referred to as person one, person two, person three, an individual, and so forth, were referenced throughout the charging documents, but are not themselves indicted. And we found this very weird looking at the specific character of these people because we saw that there is this shock and awe standard of prosecution that is the stated and self-professed standard by the lead prosecutors in 1-6. Individual called Michael Sherwin got on TV and said, we're doing a shock and awe standard prosecution. And what that means is it's the highest degree of severity. What that means is just for instance, you have a sandwich shop owner called George Tanios who's facing 60 plus years in prison for saying no, no, not yet when his friend came and tried to get bear spray out of his pocket. For saying no, no, not yet in that situation. For bear spray that didn't even hit any officers as, as we proved, he's facing 60 years. And so our team is looking at these charging documents saying, how are these people, some people facing indictments for 60 years for nothing, uh, dozens of people in prison under horrible conditions for basically nothing, and you have underlings in various militia groups being indicted, and yet you have people who occupy senior positions within these major militia groups, the same militia groups that the media and the government are telling us were the most dangerous groups that did all of the you know, most insurrection-y stuff on 1-6. Most like 99.9% of people were just doing nothing. A very small handful of people were doing this insurrection-y stuff in these militia groups. And that's what the media is talking about. And we're looking at these documents saying, so why aren't these senior members indicted when the people indicted who are beneath them have done uh, far less than they have? And uh, we explore the possibility that some of those people are unindicted as a result of a prior relationship with the federal government, either as an informant or an agent. And we rule out other possibilities like, oh, maybe they're building up a case and so forth. Um, And so this latest piece really puts a fine point on that. It focuses on one guy, and that is an individual called Stuart Rhodes, who is the founder and head of the Oath Keepers, this allegedly big and dangerous uh, militia and so forth. And with him... We focus on his statements, we focus on his actions prior to and leading up to 1-6 and apply it against the shock and awe standard. Why are these people indicted and yet this guy who's literally the founder and kingpin of the biggest and scariest militia group that they're all talking about remains a free man? And it's important to to note, everyone, you need to go to revolver.news and read the full thing because it's a long, detailed, and somewhat complicated argument. So I take it very seriously to basically suggest that somebody 
is is a federal operative. I don't take that lightly. I don't take pleasure in it. And I impose upon myself and Revolver extremely high threshold of confidence before doing that. And so people can read this story and be like, oh, you're just saying his statements and actions leading up to on one six. It's your opinion that those constitute an indictable offense, but maybe they're not. That's getting the point wrong. It's not about what my opinion is. It's about what the government's own stated position is. Because this guy... There's an incoherence uh, there with, as you said, what Michael Sherwin stated, what Christopher Wray said, you know, when he testified. There's an incoherence, but in the case of Rhodes, it's, it's much more than simply an incoherence. The incoherence is a matter of degree and severity. You say, I think that what this person did was way more serious than what this other person did. So it's incoherent that the person who seemingly did more remains unindicted. That was the general structure of the argument in the previous piece. The (laughs) argument for Rhodes, surely there is that, but it's actually much stronger and much more precise (laughs) because it's not even about my opinion, whether Rhodes's actions or statements constitute a conspiracy or being part of the conspiracy. As, as I was saying, this is the government's official position because Stuart Rhodes's underling in the Oath Keepers, a guy called Thomas Caldwell, who is indicted, he uh, petitioned for bail to get out on bond. And the government responded saying, no, we don't want him to have bail. And they, the prosecutors wrote a whole statement as to why they thought he was not entitled to bail. And in this statement, they go on to say how Thomas Caldwell was part of this grand conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. But the funny thing about this document is, in just about every instance that they mention this conspiracy that Thomas Caldwell is involved in, they don't reference or cite Caldwell's statements or actions they mention Stuart Rhodes's statements or actions. So in effect, they're saying, we're denying you bail because you were part of a conspiracy. And in, in explaining what the conspiracy was, they reference the statements and actions of Stuart Rhodes, who's unindicted, unindicted. completely. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that's really remarkable. It's like Because by their own statements, they're saying that he's part of the conspiracy by virtue of saying, we can't give bail to this guy because he was part of the conspiracy that was basically generated by Stuart Rhodes. Well, then why haven't you indicted Rhodes? Now, uh, there's another detail here to say, well, you know, I'm getting a little bit lawyerly, but again, it's very serious. So I want to just address um, objections or, you know, uh, questions that people might have just hearing this. People might say, well, Maybe they're just building up a case. Maybe he's the big fish and they're just building up a case and that's why it's taking a long time. This is uh, an extremely unlikely explanation for two reasons. The first reason is that they actually, on account of Stuart Rhodes's statements, they use that as a pretext to say, oh, we need more National Guard troops in DC. So if the government's position is that this 60-plus-year-old disabled guy shouldn't have bail because he's a danger to society, and yet the guy who basically uh, they're saying 
generated the conspiracy in which this other guy was that they're denying bail and his words and actions justify more troops in dc and yet the guy that they're denying bail to because he's a security threat this 60 plus year old disabled guy is too much of a threat and yet Rhodes remains unindicted for six months if they wanted to hit him with a bigger charge they could have just hit him with the same conspiracy charge and then done a superseding indictment on the big indictment that they were allegedly or hypothetically planning for. So that is an extremely unlikely explanation. So I think this is a, it, it raises really important questions to ask the, the government. So why haven't they indicted this guy when their own government documents or the own prosecution basically argued that he is the orchestrator of the conspiracy in the bail document for Thomas Caldwell? And the context, in context, the argument is even stronger because this, this guy, Stuart Rhodes, has a career dating back many, many years. This isn't his first rodeo. And in fact, he seems to have a history of injecting himself into flashpoints such as 1-6. Mm -hmm. And the result is invariably everyone around him gets indicted. He somehow magically is never indicted and he moves on to the next thing. This has been going on for a long time. And so is this about him? No, I frankly don't care about him. I'm not interested in him being indicted. If this, uh, what this piece suggests is correct, I would encourage Rhodes to do the right thing and spill the beans because actually I think of Stuart Rhodes as a small fish. I think the big fish are, who is his handler? I would love to know that. And actually, he has an opportunity now, if this is right, to do the right thing for the country and actually reveal what's going on and to expose the higher-ups, the, the bigger fish. So he's a small fish, and I, he does have an opportunity here to do the right thing. This is not about him. This is not, I have no animus toward him or anything like that. This is simply about question that I'm laser focused on, the revolvers focused on, that the whole country should be focused on, which is, was this an intel setup? Because it's not just about justice for Ashley Babbitt or all the dozens of people who were held in prison uh, that we've learned from the great reporter Julie Kelly. This is about all of us, Nor. This is about all of us in America, 70 plus million people who voted for Trump who have been declared domestic terrorists by our own country. Yeah. And they're using January 6th, the false narrative of January 6th as a pretext to advance this new domestic war on terror, this new Patriot Act. That's what this is about. And that's why the stakes are so high. Yes, and um, you've said it also uh, on Twitter a few times. This is about bringing the national security state to heel. And um, I, I completely share your, I mean, concern is not a strong enough word, but I'm watching from, from over here across the ocean. And for me, when I did the little trolling uh, last uh, week or 10 days ago in Geneva, it was very much, yes, about election integrity. But in my heart, it really was about standing up for all the Americans, as you said, the 70, 80 million Americans who have voted for President Trump, who who are patriots, who want to safeguard their republic, and who are being so unjustly smeared as domestic terrorists by this regime. And I, I feel incredibly 
strongly about this for various reasons. I mean, I abhor injustice, and and this is so egregious. And uh, the fact that the very strange situation I'm in, you know, oddly, even though the circumstances are very different, but I can relate to being labeled as a terrorist for actions I didn't commit or somebody else's actions. And uh, I, I just find it so disgusting the treatment that Americans, upstanding citizens, are being subjected to, being called domestic terrorists, being called white supremacists. I mean, the only systemic racism that I see from over here happening in America is towards white people. It's true. And um, that's why we need more people like you who really, as I said, are doing republic-saving type of work. And so on this note, I'll encourage everybody to go and support Revolver by subscribing, and I've said it before, but the ad-free experience really is phenomenal, so they won't be disappointed. (laughs) You've done a great job with that. And also buy merch. I was rocking my merch very proudly. Yeah, the the merch is great, and you look great in it, so I'd encourage everyone to get the merch, get the hat. The hat seems to be popular, but we should maybe even get some more stuff, so Mm -hmm. maybe I should uh, get some more stuff made, but yeah. Get the merch, get the ad-free support. Um, By the way, I saw you did a a shout-out to Columbia Bugle the other day on Adam's Live, and I agree he's been such a champion for Revolver. But I I hope I get a a spot on the podium for a champion for Revolver. Oh, definitely. You're in the pantheon. No question about it. Nor is in the pantheon. Very proud to be. Thanks so much, Darren. As you know, I'm going to try and keep these uh, episodes quite short because I know people enjoy shorter formats, but the the advantages that I get to have repeat guests, so I really hope you'll come back on. Oh, anytime, anytime. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Yep, bye-bye.